Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Andy Clemmer. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So to get started, for those who don't know you like I know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. I am, in the, in the shortest form, I'm an owner's representative. Meredith Group is a project direction company. We do a, we do a different scope of work than I think typical owner's reps in that we write the program for each building that we've built. We oversee the retaining of the entire design team, including doing architecture search. We oversee design, we oversee construction, we oversee FF&E, we open, and we're still involved with every museum we've built over the course of time. So we have kind of a long involvement with each of our clients. So my favorite side question, how did you get into this business? You were not born an owner's rep. How did this happen? I got into it in a very strange manner. And when I, I, I got invited to talk to a high school class once and they never invited me back because I'm really not, it, it's not a path that anybody would be recommended to follow. I'm a, I went to Bowdoin College, studied economics and environmental studies. When I got out of college, I became a carpenter. And so I was a house builder. I was a contractor. I had you know a whole contracting company in New York City for a little while, and at one point just stopped. I just said this is not why I was put on this earth. And very coincidentally, just after I, I closed that, that down, I did a couple of developments, which means I I bought a building and I converted it and I leased it, and then I was looking for more projects. And I got a call from somebody who I had taken to a ball game. And he needed a partner to finish the Guggenheim Museum on Fifth Avenue. Just literally, I had taken him to a ball game. He, we, we had a cabinet maker friend in common, Jeff Benke from uh, Altura Studios. And so I walked into the Guggenheim as a carpenter with boots and shorts, and they needed somebody to oversee construction. And I loved it. And by the end of it, I was wearing a, you know, a jacket and a tie. I got along well with the director. And at the end of the project, he said, hey, do you want to do another? I worked on Guggenheim on Fifth Avenue when they did the Quathme Siegel edition. And right after that, we jumped into Guggenheim Bilbao with Frank Gehry. So, oh, so for our listeners, anyone listening who's interested in doing what Andy does, you have to be a carpenter. Then you have to take someone out to a ball game, and then you'll get the Bilbao <laughs> Guggenheim. That's how exactly. that works. It's, it's a fine. career path. Isn't that yeah, a career path? Very standard, low-hanging fruit. Just you know, jump right in there. Exactly. All right. That's awesome. Bowdoin, that's love the state of Maine. I used to live there. Okay, so let's get right into this. Here we go. Today's episode is, speaking of Bilbao, today's episode is The Real Bilbao Effect with Andy Klemmer. As always, I know the list, but not much more, and my guest has the rest. And today we have seven points to go over. If listeners want to keep track while you are out for a jog, reparking the car or sitting down with your notebook out and furiously writing like I do. So point number one is simply words matter. I think that's something from the book of philosophy of Clemmer. Words matter. You're going to have to say more words to describe something that's that succinct, which I love. Say more about that. I think all we mean there is that the first part of the building brief that we were talking about earlier that describes to an architect and to a design team what somebody wants 
are all their words, their aspirations. They're saying, here are our goals. This is who we want to be when we open a new building. This is how we want to affect people. So words and clarity and owner's articulateness matter. And also their consistency. So getting it down on paper and getting it into a really good format where you can refer to it often is a is an important anchor for a project. You don't want first you want them to be comprehensive. These are I, I need to do five things or else I'm uh, this is a failure. Well, everybody needs to know what those five things are, and those five things shouldn't change. It takes a long time to build a building, and they shouldn't change over the course of that time. And at the end of this, at the bottom of the list, I can give you an example of that, of simple words that drove a project in a really beautiful way. And the simplicity and the clarity helped make it clear and easy for everyone to do their specific job in that overall effort to build a building. How did you, I, I love everything you just said. And I, in fact, did just get it all down on paper. And I'm wondering, Part of me is wondering, how did you go from being a carpenter to being an articulate wordsmith? But I'll, I'll leave that for a, a cocktail conversation. For our listeners, I'm curious to know how long it takes to make a document that is as important as you just said. It sounds like it's maybe not 900 pages like a like the Bible would be, but it is a Bible for the project. It must take some time to create one of those when you're helping a client to do that. Am, am I right about that? Or does it just kind of all happen quickly when you're doing it with them? No, it takes, it, it varies client to client. It's funny that you use the word Bible because we use that a lot. It is the kind of the project Bible and people keep going back to it and rereading it and rereading it and reinterpreting it and trying to make sense of it. In one great case, there are two, two I, I get a lot of examples, but one that pops to mind is the Perez Art Museum in Miami. They had a little 35,000-square-foot museum in the government center, a different part of town, and they had this aspiration, and they end up a successful bond issuance by the county, Miami-Dade County. Then they said, they actually took a year. Suzanne Delahanty set it up really well. She was the director at the time. She said, we need to plan carefully, and she hired us, and together with her museum committee, we wrote those words, we wrote the aspirations, we wrote the things we had to do to be successful. And that took nine months, and then we did estimating, and then we did balancing, but more detail of how we have to work with the client. But ultimately, we had a really nice aspirational statement about what we needed. We had the number of gross square feet that we needed to accomplish it, and we had a dollar figure that was realistic for accomplishing that goal, $130 million. That's the process, and that all precedes talking to any architects. Another example is the Kimball Art Museum. They have been in the business a long time. They were very solid about what they were doing. They knew everything they wanted. They've been trying to build a building for 30 years. It took two months to write their building brief because they knew they, it was just right there at the tip. I asked a question. They had a full answer, and, it, and we were done within probably seven weeks. It's two different examples. Do you have a formula for that or a questionnaire or a template that you use where it's to some degree, you know, you're like a doctor diagnosing a patient, like how often do you smoke? Uh, how fit would you like to be? Is it more of a science or more of an art? More of an art. It's more of a conversation. I think we're very clear about, because of the fact that we've been doing this for a while, we're, we're clear about what an architect needs to be successful. 
the kind of direction that they would need to be successful. First of all, getting at the mission of a of a client isn't that hard. Like those questions are pretty simple. Like who who are you? Who's your audience? What are you trying to do? What do you, what do you, what do you have to show? What do you what is your purpose? If it's education or it's enlightenment or it's recreation, people have a mandate. We have a project in Warsaw actually where the director said just give me Miami. It's perfect. That building is exactly what I want. I want one of those. That's how the conversation started. We said, no, 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 no. There's got to be something unique about you that's different. And uh, they didn't believe me at all. And then we set up some sessions, like you're saying, art or science. It wasn't a questionnaire that they could fill out. And we went to a long meeting with them. At the end of the meeting, we, did, we happened, we stumbled into a dialogue about art and the preciousness of art. I said something about the preciousness of art. And the director said, oh, we don't care about the art that much. We care about the conversation. And that led to a whole dramatic basis for a building brief. Then it was all about how people reacted to art and how people reacted to exhibitions. And now there's this wonderful building going up in the center of Warsaw. The entire first floor is open with seating you can move around classrooms without walls, auditorium without walls, so everybody can be part of the conversation. Upstairs are galleries, There's the, that's the provocation, but the first floor is dedicated to the conversation. And that came out of the, that came out of casual conversation and became the essence of the brief. Wow, okay, it really is, really is art and not a science. And those are two, what well, the examples you've just given are all very different museums, all very different time frames that it took, but it sounds like the minimum is, you know, a few months and the maximum is less than a year. That's how long that phase that's, for listeners who are thinking, boy, I got to call Andy. I got a project in mind. What you're getting into is that art with Andy is going to be, and other people at Paradise Group is going to be two months minimum probably, but you know, within a year it should get done. And then you can go to that next phase that otherwise you might've thought you'd be starting right away. And it, and it reminds me of a carpenter saying, but measure twice and cut once. So you get the words right and you get these numbers right and you get this planning right, you're, a, you're on a much better path. And I could, we could talk for the next several hours about all the, all the buildings that don't start this way and they wander and they, you know, they get off track either monetarily or programmatically. You know, most buildings are not built in a super thoughtful way. So we are, we're definitely bucking a trend. I love measure twice, cut once. That's a aphorism that carpenters have in common with tailors. Yes. And uh, <laughs> yeah, the idea being that it's it's relatively easy to measure again. You could measure three times and it wouldn't be too much skin off your back, but you try to cut that, that piece of rare fabric uh, in a slightly different way and uh, not going to happen. You already cut it. Exactly. That's, that's a Out of luck. One. Out of luck. S-O-L. So uh, point number two, so that was all about words matter, which is so terrific to, to, to start a conversation that's about eventually ending up with a building by talking about words and the fact that they matter, that there's a force to language and a consequence to language and its precision. Number two, I think, is the next step in your process, or it sounds like it's the next step, and that is helping an owner be a conductor. And I'm very curious about that. Symphonies have conductors, railroads have conductors, Say more about how you view how, and you're also helping the owner to do that. How, how do you make the owner be that? So I think, and if there's a another, if there's a unique thing about what we do, Iridus Group, 
we're trying to make owners be effective, as su super effective, as effective as they could possibly be in this process, and to let them know that they play an enormous role. And some people get that better than others, but I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to build a building, hire an architect, they'll build me a building. Then I'll walk out, I'll open the door, walk in and do what I was going to do. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're part of every step of the way. You're part of the site and you're part of the grounding and you're part of the location and you're part of, you know, unless someone understands every aspect of what you need, they can't possibly do their job. And good architects love us and love this process because we bring to them our, we bring to them owners who are clear and articulate and consistent, and it makes a big difference. So helping an owner be a conductor, actually, I said that when we first talked, and I'm realizing now it's even better than I thought because the owner is the conductor, not the architect. The owner has a the owner's going to own this building for 50 or 100 years. They have their past. They have the reason they're in this activity, whatever it is, institution, museum, um, <clears throat> foundation. They're going to have to live with the building after it opens. And so they have to orchestrate all of this interaction of all of these people who are going to be involved in this process. And for us, it's all one thing. Once, once they're clear about those words that will drive them, it affects, of course, the architecture, but it affects the structure and it affects the mechanical and it affects the graphics and it affects the signage and it affects everything. It affects the drive, the, the sign at the road. Everything is has to be linked up and driven by the same purpose. And when it is, and when you achieve all that kind of unity, it's evident. You walk in and everything feels in place. And you don't have to be a designer. You don't have to be an architect to go into a place that's done well and where that thread is through everything and to feel like, oh, something's right about this place. Something you just said just caught my ear. You just said they will own it for 50 to 100 years. Is that how you think about the lifespan of a building? Is that how everyone thinks about the lifespan of a building? I, I've you know, shared my thoughts about how long things last depending on what they are, but is that a thing? Is that like oh, a absolutely. known thing? Yeah, and, and, and now particularly if you're going to use up the resources to build a new building, it should last hundreds of years. Oh, okay, so fifty to one hundred is not like, like that's the you know an average elephant lives fifty to one hundred years. You're no, talking no, no, about no. Minimum, minimum fifty to one hundred years, yes. and then on from yes. there, after a hundred years, yes. you have to repoint the masonry. But the skeleton is still good, and we're still cooking. Yes, got it. Okay, that was talking about an owner as a conductor. Sounds like it's even more relevant than we talked about before. Andy, you and I talked about that. We had a pre-show earlier and uh, sort of surfaced up a bunch of this, and you're sharing some new stuff too now. Point number three, I am having, I'm having a psychological hesitation before I say this point number three, because I think there's some controversy here. I want to see what you're going to say. I want to see what Andy's going to say. Point number three is every... <laughs> I can't even complete without laughing. Point I'll number three, <laughs> every architect has one bad building. Every architect has one bad building. Architects out there who are listening, you know, just stop listening for a minute. No, I'm kidding. Do listen. What do you mean by that? And how do you reckon with that in your profession? Well, uh, the point is that, well, the point, it's similar to something I said before. People think if they need a building, they need simply hire an architect and they'll design one and then somebody will go out and build it. And 
the architect isn't the only bit of it. It's this owner who has to be prepared and has to act as a conductor and has to do all the things we've been talking about and has to be articulate. And so for, I would also say in, on, on behalf of all these architects who built all these bad buildings, for every bad building, there's a bad owner. Because somebody hired them and said yes and said, and then went out and got a builder to make it permanent. And you know all of that is an owner's responsibility. So but I'm reminded of a trip to see Renzo Piano and to look at the, some of the works that he had done. And he begged us not to take a group of trustees to, a, to one particular building. And of course, we went anyway. And we knew instantly why he had wanted us not to go. Uh, so he has, I'm going to say it out loud, he has a really bad building in Amsterdam out in the water. But when you did research and scratch at the surface a little bit, you found out that the owner ship and the use of the building changed several times while it was being developed. They didn't have a clear program. They didn't know what they were going to show. And, you know, all of that is evident in the building. So every bad building is a bad owner. Or it sounds like a, maybe that was a series of owners doing their best. They were just new all the time and there wasn't a clear brief from the beginning to the end. Definitely was no that's clear. another issue. Yeah, bad brief behind every bad building. So I think that you you just excuse did you just excuse the <laughs> profession of architecture that architects can do no wrong it's others that do it and that architects well, they, are they have co they uh, owners have complicity at least complicity oh, i see all right can you i just have to ask you any other stories about a building that you don't have to um, name names you don't have to reveal things you don't want to reveal but because you've done a few of these projects. Any other stories about a building that turned out not so good? Oh, the Stata Center at MIT. I mean, come uh, on. It's just a, it's a, it's a disaster, and I don't think it'll ever be great. And it's the owner is an engineering school. It's like, how could they not have been clearer with the architect? You know, they, they simply thought that by getting this brand-named architecture that everything would be perfect and rosy and it's just it's and it's literally it's the next point we're going to talk about is the good build bow effect and the bad build bow effect and mit status center is the bad build bow effect it's like oh just make a curvy metal thing and we'll be successful like they were in bilbao and it's like nothing could be further from the truth and the two owners were the difference same probably same engineers worked on the building or some of them i'm sure there was overlap in the design team I have a couple of buildings like that where this exact same builder, architect, same builder, architect, engineer, consultants on two projects and their night and day success and failure. So what's the difference between them? I, I happen to know that building and I know that uh, it was a few years before people started noticing problems with it, but it was the same architect who created the building that is now the namesake of the Bilbao effect. So our session here today, the whole session is called the real Bilbao effect. So let's get into that. Point number four is good Bilbao effect versus bad Bilbao effect. What do people think the Bilbao effect is? Tell us a little bit about that project and then why there's such a thing as a bad and a good Bilbao effect. Tom Krenz at the beginning of the 90s, 91, 92, 92 he opened that Guggenheim on Fifth Avenue reopened the Guggenheim Fifth Avenue and he was the uh, head of the Guggenheim at that time he was the director of the Guggenheim and he yeah. opened up a branch in Soho and he was 
he had the idea, which is now in vogue at the time and for years and years was much maligned franchising. They have a collection. There's a big collection that he's paying a lot of money to store. Why not put it in other institutions and get it out, out of storage and onto a floor someplace instead of, you, know, you can only show so much in a building. So he had been shopping this idea around to Vienna. He had both potential projects in Tokyo and they all had a, they had a building brief that were attached to them. I was handed one of those briefs for Bill Bao. Bill Bao came and, and said, yes, we, we think we'd be a good candidate. I think there was a lot of skepticism at the front end. But the interesting thing about Bill Bao is that Tom Krenz and the Basques signed a deal and together they built a building. So that's, that ownership is what people should pay attention to when they look for the Bill Bao effect. The Bilbao effect, I'm going to switch now. I'm going to jump to the bad Bilbao effect. Bad effect is that people looked at Bilbao and said, oh, all I need to do is hire Frank Gehry or all I need to do is build a curvy metal building. Look at all the curvy buildings that came after Bilbao, partially because computers could do that, partially because Frank Gehry figured out how to get computers to do that, like he's at, you know, at the forefront of that use of technology. But they thought all I need to do is make a shiny building, do something you know that's eccentric or shiny, and that's what they did in Bilbao. And look at the, the, you know, the, their economy turned around. The reality is the Basques built a lot of things. They invested enormous amounts of, invested enormous amounts of money. They built a new airport. They built a subway from scratch in the city that didn't exist before. They were, they had plans to redo their train station. They did commercial development. They cleaned up the Nervion River. They did enormous projects. And they, they even promised us that the 10 rail lines running along right through our site were going to be moved, not before we opened, but after we opened, but they're going to move rail lines to the other side of the river. We were all like, that never happens. You know, People don't move rail lines across a river. The Basques followed through on every single promise that they made. And they were diligent in thinking about the community in which this building was going to be built. And they were perfect partners for Tom Krenz. And Frank Gehry was amazing at listening carefully to what the owner needed. And he did an amazing job meeting a very specific program. The elevators are in the right place and the loading dock works perfectly and the circulation is genius and all of those things happen. The bad effect that came out of it was people go, oh, look, shiny curved metal building. With, with metal shingles. That's all I have to do. And the, the amount of work that went into it is under-advertised. The tenacity and the kind of the focus of the Basques is under-advertised. So it's, it sounds like in order to resurrect the fortunes of a municipality or a county or a country, the correct way to do that is to do it the old-fashioned way. Have city leaders and investors and people with vision who stick to a plan and do it every which way. They move whole train lines. They dig whole subways. Exactly. They do everything. Exactly. They create an airport. They do everything that would create economic vitality. And by the way, they also do things like make a museum and it turns out real well and it's good looking. But that's kind of like the icing on the cake. And what you're saying is you can't just have icing. Yeah, exactly. you have to have the rest of the exactly. cake, and it has to people, be well done. People are building the candles on the cake, not even the icing. 
And mm-hmm. I think that's still happening, right? You must see, oh, you, do you oh, get approached all by people today who just, they're like, give me one of them Bill Bow things. And exactly. you're like, I got to tell you a little story here, pal. Exactly. Exactly. And and the Basques have a story to tell. They were amazing. And their story doesn't get told. And it, you know everybody thinks, oh, Bill Bow was Frank Gehry. Well, it was Frank Gehry, but it was Tom Krenz and Frank Gehry and a particular collection and an amazing local government, which is still... I think that that party is still in power because of the success, the financial success that they that they made possible. And Bilbao, for listeners, Bilbao is a town not in southern Spain, like your Barcelona's, et cetera, but it's in northern Spain, northeastern Spain, in the Basque region, right where the east-west coast of Spain is about to turn north and become the west coast of France. It's up in that corner. Exactly. So it sounds like you're saying that the real Bilbao effect is the thing I just described. Like, if you want to turn a city around, you have to turn a city around. You can't just plunk a curvy, shiny museum in the middle of it. Exactly. And another one other thing that they did that I think is noteworthy is they were very, very careful to appeal to the their local market who they're serving that's whose tax dollars they're spending and to try to appeal to an international market and the international art world that they were appealing to was part of their independence from madrid they wanted as a spanish entity to be able to reach out to the world without going through madrid because the Basque still you know there's a lot of groups that still feel quite sent separate from the central government so they made a connection to the world directly from Bilbao to other major cities through the Guggenheim. At the same time, they were super careful about making sure that the Guggenheim was going to share the parts of their collection that would appeal to the Basques. And when we did this, our original, all of our planning was written about 100,000 people the first year, maybe, if it's a, if it's a spectacular, and then about 200 or 250,000 people a year max are going to come to Bilbao because nobody went to Bilbao to look at art before this, more or less. They've had over a million people every year on average and for 25 years. So their predictions were four times, or I'm sorry, their reality was four times what they predicted. Half of the visitorship are from the Basque region alone. And the other half are roughly international visitors. So they got double because they were careful to appeal very assiduously, really consciously, really carefully to to two audiences and not to one. So it's not just an international place for contemporary art. It's also, there are things there called the classical galleries and they're clad in stone. They're very, for Frank Gehry, very, very rational, sky-lit, rectilinear, stone-clad, beautiful, beautiful Frank Gehry-designed galleries and galleries of shape like the fish gallery which don't exist anywhere else in the world in the fish gallery you can have you know 10 richard Serras in one room that doesn't exist anywhere in the world but in the classical gallery you have andinsky hanging and those two things together first of all they have their own magic together and secondly they're drawing people from different parts of the world to the guggenheim and that's why they've been so successful are, are you as paradis group involved you just mentioned the estimates of attendance and that they undershot what they would eventually have. In my experience, it's always better for a project to do it that way than the other way around and overshoot what you eventually end up with. Are you involved in verifying those estimates or helping a client 
successfully estimate how many visitors they might have, if, if the visitorship is critical to the success of the organization, how are you involved in getting that number right from the start? Do, you, do y'all do that? Or do you oversee bringing someone on to do that? We currently, you know, our scope is grown over the course of time. So we're currently hiring business planners and people who do audience prediction and whatnot. It, at that time, we were given those numbers by others and we planned for those numbers. In the case of Bilbao, the only design changes they've made over 25 years have been to accommodate the crowds, bathrooms, retail, cafe, all grew. And some galleries had to be given up to make the cafe, to make the restaurant bigger because they couldn't serve the crowds that they had. So they've done it all very well. Wandi Nathia Badarte was the lead of the owner team. There were two New Yorkers and two Basques. So Juan Ignacio and Carlos Oteriago were the Basques, and me and Tom Holt were the, the New Yorkers hired by the Guggenheim. The four of us were kind of the owner's team. Juan Ignacio Bidarte then became the director and is still the director and still managing the place day to day. So you spent a lot of time in the Basque region there. I just have one little question. Is, isn't the Basque region where they have that kind of sparkling white wine that they decant from like two feet above the glass called Sakoli or it's just something like that? I may not be able to answer. <laughs> I drank a lot of Rioja and I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Excellent. Let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can write a review in Apple Podcasts. And a big thank you for everyone who has done that and made this show a five-star podcast on both those platforms. You can also just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and the sister newsletter. Now back to the show. Today, we are talking with Andy Klimmer about the real Bilbao effect I think we just got to what that is. We have seven points for today, and we have done the first four. That must mean that next up is number five, which is related to what we were talking about before the halftime show, what the real Bilbao effect was, and that is number five, architecture is practicality first, fun second. Practical first, fun second. You were just talking, I want to sort of pull out something you were just talking about that Frank Gehry mastered this idea of the this, this swoopy, shiny architecture, but he was also a masterful and practical architect, designing rooms and hallways and things just perfectly for operation. Is that what we're getting at here, that architecture is practicality first and fun second? I think that also applies to all of design and other things too. It's precisely that, and he was, he was really great at that. And I've, if I could, you know, if we had a first floor plan of Bukenheim Bilbao, I could show you how a single gallery can be flipped to back of house from gallery very simply and change the proportion of back house to front of house, which is a functional thing inside a museum that's very useful. He was just incredibly clever. And it's it's the opposite of what you would think looking at the building. You would think it can't possibly be perfectly functional, but I, I could show you how it actually is. And I think that, you know, an architect has a job to do. They're not just artists. They're not they're not there to do a painting. They're there to make a building where you can get in. And it's hard. They have to keep in mind for 
anything they do, they have to keep in mind building code, access, weather, climate, water, materiality, use of the inside space, structural limitations, mechanical limitations. It's like there's like 18 things that you have to solve for it simultaneously. You want to move that over or lift it up. Well, it affects 10 of those things on the list. It's hard to balance those things. And a lot of current architecture, they'll do one thing. Oh, got a swoopy roof. And everything else suffers because of it. Oh, there's condensation. And oh, you can't hang art on that wall because it's curvy or it's sloped or there's no wall. It's a, it's a swoopy roof. You know, and the people who get it right, and the architects we've been lucky enough to, to work with it, get it right, are like Demron, Sana, Lenzo Piano, and Gary, Tom Pfeiffer. They, they make spaces that are beautiful. They're detailed beautifully. They, they show art, if it's a museum, they show art beautifully. The, the climate is right. The access is right. It, it meets code, it meets its requirements, it's flexible or it has to be flexible. It's like all those things work. But there are a lot of buildings where the idea, the big idea, makes a compromise out of all else. That That's the kind of the thing we fight against. Right. So it sounds... I, okay, so I am an architect fallen from grace myself. I had started my education, undergrad, was planning to go back to grad school and got distracted by this thing called exhibition planning and design, which I, I fell into and thought that was pretty groovy. And now it's years later and here I am. But I've always been sort of an architect first. So it sounds like you're saying that, or maybe it's my bias that you're saying that architecture is damn hard, but architects are damn good at it. And there's no reason you could not achieve a very complex museum like the ones you just mentioned and have everything be very good because that's what architects ought to do and when it falls short you might have, it might be glitzy or you know you might be aiming for the bad bill bow effect misunderstand it and then mess everything up as a result emphasizing the wrong thing do i have that right i think that's the way 85% of the buildings in this country are built the bad way the bad way focusing on one feature no, or something no photogenic break. or yeah, exactly. exactly. You were sharing in our in our pre-show, you were sharing, you just mentioned the architecture firm Sanaa, which is a great firm, S-A-N-A-A, -A, uh, done a number of terrific buildings. You were sharing an anecdote about how the leader of that firm impressed a client of yours and won a project by explaining in great detail the complexity of a particular decision that was made. Would you be able to share that anecdote again? Sure. This was uh, Sejima was in a final interview. There was a screen up on the wall. It had the Rolex Learning Center, a plan of it, and the there's a hole in the center of the building, which is actually the set the entry of the building is in the center, and there's a their story down to the courtyard, and it's an odd shape, and the owner of the owner running the interview said pretty much because he said I'm never going to see you again. How did you get this shape? Did your hand slip? Or is this just like, is this just because it was fun? Because it's not a circle. It's not geometric. It's not an oval. It's not an egg. It's not a, it's, I, I don't know how this shape comes to be. And she just snapped too and just said, you know, she kind of focused finally and said, no, oh, no, 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 no. This is curved because this, this 
area here is curved to catch the wind because there's a prevailing wind off the lake and that the, it's a passively cooled space there's no air conditioning in there and i have to catch the wind to do that and then it swoops down here because this is a quiet activity and we don't want the noise from these adjacent spaces not to be impacting this quiet activity and this over here was necessary because the structural span is you know it's 45 feet and the the arch could have had, had to be a very low arch and to accomplish that and showed how every single inch of the curve and the irregularity was the result of a series of decisions that had to be made and and it was the balancing of all of those elements climate and the sun's path and the structure and the curtain wall and the roof material and the activity inside and the acoustics and all of those things came together to create this shape it's a very it's a super interesting building it's super super popular with the students rolex Soul learning center in lausanne and it was all done hyper intentionally as opposed to arbitrarily and the flipping point was what looked like an arbitrary move was described in a super exacting way that there was this architectural algorithm that led to that choice and that's a thousand variables had to be controlled in that in the way that that thing was designed so it showed that these people are not just thinking they're thinking at a really high level to get to that kind of resolution and i would say bill bow is the same it's got some crazy shapes in it but they're all there for a reason this building had to get under the bridge and this building had to accommodate a loading dock its own loading dock into the gallery and all those things are part of the consideration it's not not arbitrary architecture of which there's plenty and it sounds like this is Kazuyo Sejima of Sanaa, who I think you're yes. talking about. And from your, our conversation earlier, it sounded like she, maybe at that point in that conversation, she she might not have been favored to to win that the commission that you were talking about. But from that point forward, the owner really sat up and, and said, wow, this is someone who's really going to do a, a great job because uh, she can think about so many things at the same time. And It was a great moment. It was a great owner who was latching into the right thing. It was a great architect having a bad interview, but then snapping in and saying, you know, Sage was always getting off a 14-hour plane ride, so it's not ideal. But she just gave this explanation that made allowed the owner to understand the process, and it was precisely the kind of thinking and process that they thought would help them achieve their goals. They were hired, and that led to another great building. That's a second, our second sauna building. The other, the other first building was Toledo Museum of Art, which re, re, uh, deserves a little shout out. Really complicated glass blowing and glass display under one roof at the Toledo Museum of Art in a very inexpensive building made mostly of glass. That's kind of it. It's an unbelievable glass collection. 4,000-year-old art on display across the hall. People pulling molten mat, uh molten glass out of a glory hole and people being able to see it all because the walls are all made of glass. It's a fantastic building. It costs $294 a square foot. And, and for, it's a school. Our, for our audience, you will need to tell our listeners, is that a high number or a low number? I can oh, see the look very, on your face. It's a very low. Very, a low. Very, very low number. As long as we're at it, what are some of the costs per square foot that you have seen in museum construction? What's the range? that you've worked with in the past? Well, it's subject to escalation as well. But yeah, we have we have a database. You know, there's an interior store across the street by a famous architect from where I am down here that costs $3,200 a square foot. 
the public library in Seattle is only $275 a square foot with Rumkul Haas's office. The Guggenheim Bilbao is only $300 a square foot. And at the same time as it was being built, these are all subject to the year that you're in. But even if you escalate it out today, it's still a low number. The year Guggenheim opened for $300 a square foot, the Getty opened in Los Angeles for $1,000 a square foot. So <clears throat> money can't buy you love. That's what we tell people. What do you think was the, the key difference that made Bill Bao as effective as it was with that low a budget versus the, the Getty, which is, a, I think, a physically larger campus than Bill Bao, which is also at a higher cost per square foot, which means the cost of that project must have been yeah. orders of magnitude higher than Bill Bao. What accounts for those differences? Why do they end up that way? Just quickly, Guggenheim Bilbao is 250,000 square feet, and the Getty is about a 100,000, I'm sorry, 250,000, a million square feet. Right. So it's, uh, it's, so it's, it's three a, times more expensive and four times bigger. Yes. Yes. Bid owner, bid architect, and a budget, and sticking with the budget. Those three things are possible. But you have to, you have to, the owner, the building brief, and the budget have to be set in advance. The architect has to sign on and say, yes, I can do that. And you have to pick architects who have kept budgets before. It's part of the process. And it's also, actually, these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of our outline um, fitting together in a much better way than I thought. <laughs> because the next thing is, why not to do a design competition? It's because people, Come up with ideas without understanding the brief, without understanding the owner, because they start with design, not with the practicality. And then the buildings inevitably cost more than the owner has. So it, it's just starting off on the wrong foot, and it fits It fits with the overall narrative. The key is the those three pillars, good owner, good architect, and sticking to a budget. And the architect yes. has to have a record of sticking to budgets, not a record of not. Yeah, exactly. You have to find that out, and you have to hire that architect. And that does go to point number six. You're totally right. Point number six is why you shouldn't hold a design competition. This, for some listeners, is going to be sort of mind-boggling because we kind of assume that anything fancy is going to be a design competition that's in the paper and everyone shows all the, the winning entries and the public gets to pick or something like that. Why should you not hold a design competition to pick your architect and design your building? And what should you do instead? A design competition is a it's like starting at the end. It's saying to an architect who barely knows his client, what should I build? And they give them, and, and to win a design competition, you're going to want to do a design that is the most elaborate or shocking or interesting or intriguing to win over the owner. When in fact, what the owner needs is a building that works and a building that can show art well and a building they can afford and all those things that they don't happen to say up front. So, in lieu of a design competition, which gets people wedded to things that may prove un unbuildable, we hold something, and I learned this from Bill Lacey, who used to run the Pritzker Prize, we hold interview competitions. And we try to find for the, for the client who knows their brief and they know their budget, then they go out and start talking to architects and they have a conversation with that architect and understand what have they built, not what they promised to build in the future, what have they built. What were they asked to do and what did they do? Like, how did they respond to the problem of a previous owner? And to find someone who thinks in a way that's appealing, like Sejima was to the client, just saying, oh, I like the way you think. I, like, I think you understand what we're after. 
And now we got to go out as a team and go build this thing. So we think that finding that person, that, that architect, that firm that can understand, that can manage, that can build to budget, that can be creative, that can use different materials, that can respond well to an owner, all those things are critical attributes to getting into this six or seven year relationship, the end of which is a permanent building now that you can't do anything about. And do you think when you're holding this interview competition, what you just said, as instead of a design competition, so inherent in what you're sharing is that it's still a competition. You're still getting a number of different potential suitors for your client, and they are competing against one another for the opportunity to do this, but they're doing so by simply having a first date, you know, having an interview. What, what, what role does chemistry and personality play? You've, you've laid out a rubric for decision-making that is very practical. Good owner, good architect, great uh, town government behind the entire thing when necessary, a budget to stick to. But there's also that moment where your client saw your architect just suddenly being brilliant and something clicked. You said it clicked. What role does personality play? Is it important for your clients to find an architect that just feels good as someone they'll spend a lot of time with for years? We say, so we have our brief with the owner. We're, we're, in, we're in agreement. We have our brief, our little book. It's like our script under our arm. It has all our aspirations and goals and mission. We have a budget, and then we go out and start talking to architects. When we go out to start talking to them, our role is we have to find an architect who can speak well, listen well, and design well, and all three of those things. And there are lots of architects who do two out of three, but two out of three isn't what you need. And speak well, well, let me start the other way. Design well seems obvious. I, they've done great buildings. They've done something interesting, intriguing. They've done something great. Listen well is a really hard one. You speak to them. They heard what you said. They they acknowledge what you said, and they can internalize what you said. And then you do need them to speak well because they have to help you sell this to the public, and they have to talk to your staff, and they have to be able to articulate the direction that they want to go. So those three are critical to have together. And that's not just personality. Like speak and listen could be personality. You can be in a great dialogue with somebody. But you can also look at their buildings and say, there's no built buildings that I would ever call my own. So I don't I, you know, I don't know how that fits. Another thing is that if an architect listens well, all of their buildings should be a little bit different because they are the result of a conversation with different clients. So if you have an architect who has all of their buildings look pretty much the same, I would say that architect isn't listening very carefully to their different clients because climate is different, the family is different, the situation is different, the terrain is different, and if all the buildings look alike, it's pretty much the architect knows what they want to do. You've just got to sign up and <laughs> go along for the ride. We started our conversation with point number one, words matter. Point number seven returns us to that, I think, and that is... That's this, nature, community, service, faith, and other mantras. That four-word statement that starts point number seven is a mantra, and it's from a particular project that you did. I think it's 
one of the projects you did with Sana, if I remember. Can you tell us the story of that mantra? And then tell us what role a mantra plays in your work. So the mantra is shorthand for the entire building brief. So in this case, we spent, we actually had a, this is Grace Farms up in New Canaan, Connecticut, the sauna project. When we started, there were a lot of ideas about what we should do. There's a beautiful piece of land, a very unique piece of land in, in New Canaan, probably the only piece of land this size that was undeveloped. It had been subdivided. A group of people got together thought that they could find a better use for it. We started a project just kind of whatever it was, it, it didn't make the best use of the land and the that initial effort was abandoned. And when we said, okay, let's start over, there was really a moment and the owner said, let's start over. Let's wipe the slate clean. What should we do? And we said, okay, let's let's go let's go write a brief that's really focused. And we spent eight hours in a day and we came away the initial day. There's a, there is a fifth word now in their mantra, but art was in, infused into this. But at, on the first day, eight hours, we only ended up the day with those things in that order. Nature, community, service, faith. They have 80 acres in New Canaan. And the first thing, after a long, long, long debate, there's all these aspirations, all these goals of what they wanted to accomplish. At the end of the day, they said, oh, we can't ruin the property. You know, it's 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 this beautiful rolling land in a the community that's, you know, dotted with private homes and gated gated yards and all that. And this is a community asset. So nature came first. Whatever we do, we can't lose our sight of nature. And then community is if you go there and you can walk the anybody can go and walk the grounds, it's absolutely beautiful. And if they want, they're gonna see activities there. There will be activities, and they can see the community and the activity. Not a gated community. They can become part of it or not. It's, it's, you can opt in or opt out, and it could be sports activities, or it could be you know carol singing. It could be landscaping. It could be anything going on. But you can engage with the community if you like to. Then, if you want to go further with that community, you can serve others. There's going to be opportunities for that because it's a foundation. They do a lot of really interesting work. And you can become part of that if you want or not. You can just walk the grounds. And finally, there was a question of faith. If you really want to get into it with these, with this community, you've done some community service, there's a discussion of faith that's possible to have on that site because of its beauty and because of its the way it's developed. Those four words, everything we did after that point, everything we talked about with the architects, everything we did for the years it took to develop the building was always done with those four words in mind and making sure that we are meeting each of those goals. We were preserving nature. We were serving community. We are making service opportunities available and we had places to have a conversation about faith. In the end, if you look at the building that's up there, you can barely see it. The, the different functions are broken up into their own modules. They're glass surrounded modules. They have a, a very low slung roof, which when you're walking up to the building, the roof disappears. You only see the fascia at the front of the roof. You're either looking between the volumes, which is straight from nature to nature, or you're looking through a volume because it's all glass walls. So you can look through a volume and see the tree line beyond. So there's really nothing impeding your view. And if you go into the the sanctuary, the presentation hall, 712 seats glass around. 
So it's it's all huge panes of thermoclasts that are following this following the contour of the land. And from every single set of those 700 seats, you can see sky, you can see the tree line, and you can see the meadows. And so no matter what's going on, you're surrounded by birds and deer and people walking by, people sticking their face up to the glass. It's really, a, it's an otherworldly place. But nature is first. And to illustrate that, when we were in talking in our pre-show, you got into a particular situation during the construction of the project where you had to use this mantra, this mantra that's in a specific order also, nature, community, service, faith, not the other way around, nature first, where I think it was a group of theatrical equipment providers had come to hang the show control, the lighting, et cetera, above the theater you just described. The architect was there, you were there, others were there, and you kind of put the kibosh on it and had it change. Can you, it wasn't you, okay. You're helping the owner to become a conductor as we just described earlier, but what happened there? What was, what did the lighting look like? What was the observation made and how, what was it changed to and why? So this is a room, it's 700 seats. It's in a, it's a kind of a, a dish facing the stage. There are two lighting bars, arched lighting bars, and they are for hanging lights and aiming them at the stage. The tech crew for a band had come in and, were, and they had put like 30 or 40 or 50 devices up there. And the architect had come in and saying, oh my God, you know, like this is now the center of attention is a lighting bar. It's a wood ceiling. It's a concrete floor and it's glass. It's super simple space. But now there's this gack in the ceiling that's just really eye-catching. And they were having a debate. And just as they were having the debate, and I didn't settle it, but they were having the debate. We're like, come on, this is an opening event. The owner came in and they said, what do we do? What do we do? You know, and he looked at the architect and he said, he said, what's the issue? And they, they each described their issue, the acoustician or the lighting designer and the architect. And the owner simply said, well, what did we say we were going to do at the outset? That we're going to be, you know, beautiful space in nature. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to be a beautiful space. We didn't really tell them we're going to be the best music hall. We didn't say we're going to have the best lighting at a music show. So that wasn't a priority. So don't make it a priority now. They walked away and then the lights came down. Everybody happily took the lights down because they had the guidance. And that was an example of the mantra. It, it was a seven-year-old haiku at that point, but it was still there. And it provided that consistent thread through the project. And it settled that, you know, there's a thousand, when you go on a project like this, there are 10,000 decisions you need to make. And you need to make, you need to make them all pretty correct you know, over the course of time. So having this mantra, having a single kind of clarity of goal is one of the ways to keep consistently making good decisions as you go along, no matter whether it's furniture or food or curtains or graphics. All going to follow a thread. You said several times, it is in that order deliberately, it's in that priority order. In other words, if, because faith is the last word, if you were designing a building and uh, you said, oh, let's do this because it would be great for the faith, but it somehow disturbed the nature function, which is number one, then you would consider reducing that or not doing it. The same way that you considered or that you did reduce the amount of uh, theatrical lights that the band would be accustomed to so that they could perform in a space that really was connected to nature. Yeah. Half the discussion were the four words, and the other half was the order in which they should appear. 
And if you know just that one thing, if you knew that there was four words and the first word was nature, and then you looked at the building, and it's just look at the building, you'll understand everything the architect did from that day on was driven by that respect for nature and the primacy of nature and the and every the curve of the roof that sticking with the landscape following the terrain making it glass making these very complicated very low slung wood wood beams were all designed so that your view was never blocked by a roof line or something like that it was all so that you could see nature be in nature experience nature and this building was going to interrupt at the least possible it's eighty-five thousand square feet and you barely know it's there you really are building the words that the words are coming out in the form of a building exactly beautiful that's a great thing to to end on let me recap our list that we've gone over we've been talking about the real bilbao effect with andy Clemmer. number one words matter number two helping an owner be a conductor number three every architect has one bad building number four good Bilbao effect versus bad Bilbao effect. Number five, architecture is practicality first, fun second. Number six, why you shouldn't hold a design competition. And number seven, nature, community, service, faith, and other mantras. Although now we'd have to put art right in the middle there. Nature, community, art, service, faith, and other mantras. How'd I do? Yes, perfect. Perfect. All right. Excellent. Andy Clemmer, it has been so terrific to have you on the show. If listeners would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Your website, email. I'd love you to spell the name of your company so that people can find you online and all that good stuff. Sure. Paratus Group is P-A-R-A-T-U-S group. And we're paratusgroup.com. We're in Soho and the front door is always open. Great. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R, or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. Uh, by the way, this podcast has an older sister. It's a one-minute newsletter under the same name. That's one quick insight each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. There's a big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.